0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: What words would you use to describe eight years in a Soviet gulag, a prison camp? And realize this is not like the Salt Lake County Jail or something. Something entirely different. How would you describe that? How about a blessing? Russian author and dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote just those bizarre words. He said, Bless you, prison, for having been in my life. What? Bless you, prison? Who says that? How can that be? How can you describe the awful experience of years lost in a Soviet corrective labor camp as a blessing? The key is in the words that come right before that statement. He said, I nourished my soul there. And I say without hesitation, bless you, prison, for having been in my life. Evidently, Solzhenitsyn Solzhenitsyn experienced a certain development, a certain nourishment or blessing that he highly valued and that he couldn't find anywhere else except in that cell. Stalin's evil was Solzhenitsyn's blessing. That is not how we commonly look at suffering and injustice and evil. And it is not how the prophet Habakkuk did either. From his perspective and from ours, evil is usually a problem to be avoided at all costs. And it creates in our minds and hearts a certain dilemma when we look at God and we try to figure out how he feels about us, who he is, what he's doing, if he cares for us, if he loves us. We often say, if this is the experience in my life, which you are in charge of, God, how can I trust you? How can I even know who you are? that is essentially the question that we looked at last week last Sunday we began the Old Testament book of Habakkuk it's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament in verses 1 to 11 we found him struggling with rampant evil among his own people among the people of God he's looking out at Judah and he cries out to God how can this go on how can you the righteous God let this happen He has a dilemma. There are two things that he can't quite put together. The declared nature of God and all that he sees going on in life around him. So he cries out to God for an answer, and God gives him one. But initially, this answer does not connect these two things. It drives them further apart. It's as if Habakkuk has been complaining of a pounding migraine headache, and God steps in and announces decapitation as the cure for it. Well, that will solve the headache, but that's no real solution. That worsens things. I agree, the wickedness in the land must be cleaned up. You must deal with this, God. But how can, how, how can you use these Chaldeans? How can you do that, O oh God? That brings us to our passage for this morning. Chapter 1, verse 12, on through the first verse of chapter 2. Let me read that text. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. It's Habakkuk 1, verse 12, on through 2.1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, he drags them out with his net, and he gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes sacrifice, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net? and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The ebb and flow of conversation in chapter 1 continues. It's now it's Habakkuk's turn to speak. And his tone here in this section has changed, but his stance toward God still bears a lot of similarities. He's still troubled by God. He's still questioning. let look at the text again to make sure that we understand it, what it's saying, before we move on to discuss some main points. Verses 5 to 11 contained God's announcement of his sovereign work of raising up Babylon and his description of them in all of their wickedness. And then verse 12, surprisingly, brings to us a restrained statement of acceptance. Shock would be expected. Shock would be normal. What we find here, though, is faith. Acceptance, even. The prophet acknowledges the good nature of God. He accepts God's work in his life and in the life of his people. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? It's a question that's really a statement of affirmation, sort of like saying, are we not all people? Of course we are. What he's saying really is, God, the holy God who is, you are eternal. That would seem kind of obvious. If he's God, he's eternal. If he's eternal, he's God. But the obviousness of the statement is sort of the point. Statement of faith, he's saying, you are who you say you are. I accept that and you are mine therefore we shall not die. We need to think about that statement for just a second there in the middle of verse 12. Obviously the prophet knows that people die. He knows that righteous people die. He knows that they're being invaded by a foreign wicked enemy and it's not going to be bloodless. The next several verses indicate that he's well aware of that. So what exactly does he mean by we shall not die? The key is seen in that he has rooted this statement in the nature of God. He's just got done talking about God. God, you are holy. You're eternal. You are the one who is. That's what his name Yahweh actually means. That's who you are. And the implication is that he is sovereign over all of the earth. His will and his plans and his decree stands. No one can thwart that, can undo it, can break it. That cannot happen. So, since he's determined to preserve for himself a people... We will not die. Oh, I might die, you might die, but we will not die. He's talking about the people of God. We will not perish. Somehow, even if he has to raise up children for Abraham from these stones, he will have a people for himself. One way or another, Abraham's line is not going to die out. I'm very confident of that, Lord, because you have said all the way back through our history that you are determined to have a people for yourself. And you are sovereign over everything. Your will is not going to be thwarted, so we're not going to perish. Nevertheless, right now, Lord, you have ordained, established, that Babylon is going to come up and invade us as a chastisement and as a judgment. Now note carefully here. This is really important as we're talking about how God, how he relates to evil and suffering. Note carefully, don't misunderstand this. In ordaining this, God is not forcing Babylon to do anything at all against their will. Babylon was more than eager to come up and attack Jerusalem, given opportunity. God has given them opportunity. And then they, in full accordance with their own will, plunge headlong into it. They themselves are the author of their sin. God is not. The Bible is very clear about that. But he has given them opportunity. And he has steered them towards Jerusalem. He summoned them. Come up here. Wipe the wicked out of this place. Set things in order for me. So God is using it, but God is not doing the evil. Babylon is, and it is in full accord with their own will. They bear the responsibility for it. It's important to distinguish between God using evil and God doing evil, him being evil. It's an important distinction. He's called them up to set things straight amongst his people, and at this point, in God's plan of redemption, that means exile for them. Babylon is going to come in, Banish the people from the land, carry them off, going to destroy everything, tear down the whole of the old system, tear down the temple, take the king away. All of this is going to be changed. Pain and hardship and the loss of all of the people held dear is coming right now. Through it all, though, Habakkuk is sure. He is confident that the people are not going to fully perish. God is going to keep for himself a remnant. If that's where the story ended, make a nice little story. Prophet has a problem. God answers. Prophet accepts it like he's supposed to. End of story. It's not where it ends, though. Verse 12's affirmation of faith in God's nature and his acceptance of God's plan. Then in verse 13, turns again to questioning. How can, I'm trying to figure this out again, how can the God of verse 12 do what he's doing in verse 13. How can you do that, O Lord? How can you who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, in other words, you who are holy, why do you passively, idly sit by as the wicked man swallows up the man more righteous than himself? How does that work? He says, why do you, but he really means it in the sense of how in the world can you? How can you? I know who you are, I'm not letting go of that rope. I know who you are, but how can the pure and holy you do this? How? Why do you use Babylon? You see the question? It's really the same issue as last week, but just cast in a little different light. Last week the issue was, how can you do nothing? And this week it's, how can you do this? Same problem though. Things just aren't quite connecting if God is in fact now acting to vindicate his righteousness and justice, if he's going to tear down the wicked in Judah, shouldn't he be using some righteous instrument to do that? Why does the holy God appoint wicked pagan people, and I mean really wicked pagan people, to do this? People who surely, surely by comparison, are more wicked than the people in Judah. How does that work? How can he do that? That's about Judah, but that's not even to mention all the other nations that Babylon is going to attack and destroy all along the way. This is a troubling turn of events for him. Notice how his imagery here changes from from local to more global in perspective. It's as if he has obeyed God's command to lift up his eyes and look out among the nations. And what he sees out there about God's ways are perplexing and, and troubling to him. He expresses his complaint to God in a fishing analogy. It's as if God has made the peoples of the nations like the mass of fish and creatures in the ocean, teeming hordes of fish swimming and eels and lobsters and crab and all the stuff in the ocean, mindless, vulnerable, without a ruler, note that, That's how you've made them. And then along comes a fisherman, verse 15, Babylon, who cruelly harvests them all in. So he's picturing their conquests. And as the Babylonian meets with success, after success he rejoices and is glad, and his idolatry is seemingly confirmed in all these triumphs. He makes offerings then to his nets and to his equipment, which he thinks is enabling him to to gather in all this haul. That's how he acts. His own might is his God. And in this wicked ruthlessness and the blatant idolatry of it all, surely God, surely he is showing himself to be more wicked than all the nations and especially your chosen people, Judah. How can you do that? What is God doing using this instrument? And furthermore, verse 17, when will it stop? Is it going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever? Is it ever going to be stopped? This evil, destructive, self-centered, idolatrous violence? It's a problem. It's a powerful question. Two questions, really. Why are you doing this? Verse 13. And is it ever going to stop? Verse 17. They're important questions and they're a bit audacious, really. He kind of throws them at God. He's challenging him a little bit. But notice what he does. Consistent with last week, he's engaged with God. He doesn't just throw them out there and say, there, now I understand you fully and I'm done with you, and walk away. No, he throws them out there, but then he goes up to his watchtower and he waits for the answer. That's what he's doing in verse 1 of chapter 2. He goes up to his tower and is watching and is expecting. God is going to have something to say to this. In the meantime, I better be ready to give a response if it turns out that I've pushed things a little too far. But I'm going to be dealing with God on this. That's the text. An affirmation. That's still some difficult questions. Things are not resolved for the prophet as he looks out at God's dealings. What does God have for us here to teach us about his ways in our world and how we should respond to him? We found out that God is very personally involved in using evil in the lives of his people. He's the one who summoned up Babylon. How should we deal with that truth? Now this is not a philosophy textbook and we're not in a philosophy class so there's no way we're going to answer everything. Even philosophy classes don't answer everything. God is not intending to answer everything. What He's intending to do in us, in you and in me, is to build, to nourish genuine faith in Him within our hearts. And I think there are three things here in this text that can help in that. I think there are three things here that God means for us to continually look at, To hold before our eyes and our mind, to behold. The place we start is in verse 12 with God. That's where Habakkuk starts. The foundation upon which he rests is God and his glorious nature, his being, his attributes. The first thing that we need to consider as we struggle with God's activity in our lives, in our world, is God. Behold your God, full of glory. Behold Him. God has told you who He is, and He is full of glory. God Himself, the God revealed to us, revealed to the eyes of our hearts, revealed to us in the scriptures that god must control our vision his face must hold our gaze we must look at him and constantly see his majesty if we have any hope of being prepared to deal with his hard to understand ways and i can i cannot i cannot overemphasize enough the need to start here To begin here at this point, long before you start interacting with the world, because here's what's going to happen. If you flip things around and you go to the world first, your fallen heart is going to attempt to interpret God through the events in the world, rather than interpreting the events in the world through God. That's what our hearts are like. And if you start in the midst of something going on, if you start to try to understand God at that point, it's too late. You have to start before. The foundation must already be laid And so I urge you, I plead with you, engage with this. Start doing this now. Behold your God day after day after day. Get to know Him in all of His glorious nature. He is the everlasting God. The only true God eternally existing in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Before anything, anywhere, was, he was. He determined to create, and by the mere suggestion of thought, he made everything from absolutely nothing. He sits enthroned in the heavenly court, high and exalted, enthroned forever and ever and ever. Can you see him there? Do you see Him, God enthroned and reigning forever and ever, trying to describe His eternal nature, His existence outside of and before time, outside of space even? It's hard to do because my language and our thoughts all fail. We are bound here. We're bound by time and space. Look at this. Try to go back to the very beginning. Try to go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God hovering over the nothingness about to create. What was going on right before one? I can't even properly ask that because the word before does not apply where there is no time. Yet He was there. Forever and ever there. Wherever there is, there's no space, but He was there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, forever and ever past, perfectly at peace with one another, in perfect joy and communion within the Trinity, delighting in each other, happy forever. This is the everlasting God, the one who is the eternal God with whom we are dealing and who's dealing with us, with you and with me. When I have opportunity to think about this, there's been a full moon the last couple of nights and I've had chance to sit out at night and look at the moon reflecting off the mountains and the clouds. It's majestic. It gives me some idea of the expanse of this world that He spoke into existence out of nothing. He reigns far above and long before all of that. He's everlasting. There is nothing going on here. Nothing going on here that is beyond him. When I think about that, it causes me to sit down. Stop my worrying and hurrying and hustling and bustling. Been internally in turmoil this week as I've been trying to prepare this sermon and have been perpetually behind. And then I stop and I think about God reigning in heaven in peace. He sits there calmly, never worried. There is nothing beyond him. He's not concerned if things are gonna work out just right. He's not anxious, he's not nervous. He sits in control. He is God everlasting, and He is holy. Recall from last week the image in Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated upon the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Smoke rose up everywhere, and the voices of the angels thundered. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. He is set apart from us, the essence of the word holy. He is different in nature and in values and in the intensity to which he holds those values. We may long for justice, but not like him. We may thirst for the end of evil, but our passion in comparison is shallow. He alone is the fullness of light. In him there is no darkness, no, no darkness at all, says the Apostle John. His eyes are pure indeed, and they burn against evil, wherever it may be found. He is everlastingly holy, and he is a rock. A sure fortress and refuge for his people amidst times of trouble. The sword and the war horse... The missile and the tank, they all will fail, but the Lord is a strong tower of safety, unmoved by any assault, and those who seek refuge in him shall be saved. He is an everlastingly holy rock, and he is mine. So says the righteous man, Habakkuk. So can say you if you cling to Christ in faith. He is the God who is. The Lord, the Lord is His name, everlasting and holy, a strong, secure defense for His people, and you must remember that right now, at the beginning, first, before you engage with anything else in this world. Do what Habakkuk does. Put Him at the front end. Fix Him in front of your eyes long before anything else arrives. He's given you His Word So that you can know Him and can have His nature filling up your mind already before the challenges to this faith come, and they will come. Give yourself to the Scriptures. Fortify yourself against these threats to faith by renewing your mind daily, bit by bit by bit, beholding your glorious God in the face of Christ, seen in the pages of the Bible. Oftentimes at the moment when you most need him to be right there, it's too late to go find him. When you find yourself in the hospital emergency room and you're crying out to God, God, how could you have let this happen? I know you reign over all things and you could have stopped it, but you didn't. Why? What are you doing? It's too late to start then. At a time like that and in a case like that, you will never know all the answers. You'll never know fully what and why God is doing. But you'll be best equipped to deal with it if you have a strong foundation with steel beams driven deep down into the bedrock of the character of God. A picture of Him in your mind's eye that strongly gets the first and the last word in your heart as you evaluate any circumstances in life. Begin today driving those columns down. Behold your God, full of glory. Start today. Are you doing that? Are you growing in that? I hope you are. I plead with you, please do that. That's why he's given you the Bible. For your own good. Do it. Now then, Habakkuk And us from that foundation, then we move out and we engage with the evil in the world and the challenge arises. The second thing this passage implies we should look at is tied to the question at the end in verse 17. Is the power of evil going to be allowed to continue doing this forever? Destroying others and fattening himself to his own honor and glory. Will this just go on forever? Praying on these helpless masses who don't have a ruler? No, it is not. Behold the end of evil in God's plan of redemption. We touched on this last week. Amidst the hardship and suffering and pain, there is hope here. Look, see, behold the end of evil. Can you see that end? Can you see there on the horizon of time and approaching bit by bit destroyed evil, the end? Can you see it there? Since the fall of Satan and the fall of humanity, evil has quite obviously existed in this world. Habakkuk deals with it among his people and now he's dealing with it against his people, against all the other nations out there. Maybe you'd call this big picture evil. Nations, pillaging nations. This is global scale sort of stuff. Stated problem, is the, the, the loss, the, the suffering that people are under, going to undergo, and his stated foe is Babylon. That's what he's dealing with there. But you know, Babylon itself was relatively short-lived in the big scheme of things. You know, Maybe a century or so, give or take. A hundred years later, it was somebody else. And then they were done, and someone else is in power. This sort of thing has gone on and on forever. The spirit of Babylon didn't die 500 years before Christ. It has always lived on in Persia, and in Greece then, and then in Rome. That's why the early church used the code word Babylon to talk about Rome. It's like a Louis L'Amour novel. It's the same story, but different characters. Always going on and on. But it will not Always go on and on. Brothers and sisters, a time is coming when an angel shall descend from heaven and cry out with a mighty voice Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And another voice will cry, mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And then a multitude in heaven will break out and sing, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are just and true. The time is coming when Babylon will be finally cast down and destroyed. Now, I realize that there are some here who may interpret those chapters in Revelation to be talking about a yet to be reconstituted Babylonian kingdom. Maybe that's okay. I would argue instead that we're dealing with a pattern, a type, actually. Babylon in 600 BC becomes the persecutor of God's people and the destroyer of the world par excellence the epitome of them, because they're the ones who destroy Jerusalem. They're the ones who tear down the temple and carry the people off into exile, destroying countless nations along the way. They become the model, the pattern. And everyone since then who's followed in Babylon's footsteps, pillaging the world and persecuting God's people, all such powers are Babylonian in nature. Now there will be some particular power like that at the end. And if you're persuaded that it's going to be a, a little Middle Eastern country or maybe the Baghdad, that's okay. I'm not going to argue with you on that. The point is, mighty is the Lord God who has finally judged her. Hallelujah, His judgments are just and true. Salvation and glory and power belong to God. That's the point. Babylon's and all of evil's clock is ticking. The Babylonians of Habakkuk's world, the Babylonians of our world, the Babylonians of our children's children's world, if the Lord does not come. All Babylonians who are gleefully, willingly, eagerly destroying the people of God, attacking and sacking all the world, exploiting it for themselves, worshipping themselves, their own might as their God. Babylon is having a fine time at the ball, but the clock will strike midnight and everything will change. Verse 14 in our text described Babylon's victims as being vulnerable and without a ruler. Well, there now is one who is the rightful, righteous ruler and champion against Babylon for all who will have him. He will deal with Babylon on their behalf. God has set forth Christ as the head over all of the creation. First, over the redeemed creation, and then one day in the fullness of time over everything in heaven and on earth. Remember that from Ephesians 1? This is the end of God's plan of redemption to fully and finally deal with evil by destroying it. He will wipe the world clean, He will cast into hell evil itself, all the fallen angels. All unrepentant people and evil will be no more. All of the creation by grace or by force will be brought to heal under the authority of Christ in the fullness of time. However, in the sovereign wisdom and providence of our glorious God the time is not yet full. For now we deal with the tension in that he is just and true His judgments are and have been declared to be just and true, but right now, he still gives breath and strength and capacity and opportunity to evil. Struggle to deal with that kind of evil right now. We can look at nation-states. We're talking about global things. Wars and rumors of wars have always gone on. They will increase as time progresses. But the world is full of war. There are also other large-scale things like disease. Suffering that people everywhere deal with. All of that has its root in the fall. It all is rooted in evil somehow, if you trace it back. We struggle to deal with all of that right now. And one thing helpful towards that is to be able to see off on the horizon the smoke columns rising from fallen Babylon and to see that it is coming closer every day. When will it get here? I don't know. None do. He will, though, one day carry out this justice on that macro level. We talk about micro evil, like small, local evil. I don't say that to diminish the the pain of it, just to talk about the scope. Evil that affects you and me personally. All kinds of stuff like car wrecks and cancer. I read yesterday several stories in the paper, just heartbreaking stories about depression and suicide. A number of them. Things that affect individuals, people that you know, you, your family. How do we deal with that? Part of how we deal with that is to still have this same perspective. The new world that he is bringing we'll be one wiped clean of all of that as well. Not just the big picture stuff, but the little picture stuff too. The stuff that affects you and me. It will be different. A time is coming when he will wipe away every tear. He has sworn that. And he's proven himself to be trustworthy by raising Christ from the dead. The Messiah was crucified and raised and will come back. And He will reclaim His people and live with him forever in glorious peace. To see that coming is helpful and I think even important to deal with the tension right now. That, to know the tension will not exist forever. Trust Him. In the meantime... Having begun with this glorious God and seeing the end approaching in the meantime, all in through here, the third thing that we need to behold. One final thing that this passage hints at, I see it in the second half of verse 12, and it's at least part of the answer to the question raised in verse 13. Thirdly, behold God's sanctifying purposes in evil. Behold God's sanctifying purposes in evil. Now, carefully in saying that, I'm not trying to say that evil is actually good. Evil is evil. But God uses it for sanctifying purposes. Use the word behold there to kind of keep it parallel. Perhaps the word contemplate might work better for you. So write that in, because I think there are some things here It might strike you as odd, may require some contemplation, some thinking about. But do you realize that God ordains hardship and suffering in our lives? The text says right there in verse 12, and then also in verses 5 and 6, that He Himself is behind that. He has brought them up, He's not doing the evil. We discussed that earlier, but he is bringing it into his people's lives, clearly. With Judah in the time of Habakkuk, he's bringing in primarily as a judgment. He's wiping out the wicked and kicking them out of the land. But those two parallel statements there in the second half of verse 12, use slightly different words, judgment and reproof, expands the nuance a little bit to reprove or to correct, to straighten something out. It's going to have this effect of judgment and this effect of correcting. Two effects. The wicked will be judged, the righteous will be corrected, steered into more righteousness. God is so wise that he accomplishes two goals in two groups in the same event. And he still does that in our lives. Think of Romans 8, 28 verse that I imagine is familiar to many of us. I'm going to quote it from the ESV. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. I'm sure many of us know that verse and are comforted by it. But I think oftentimes we misunderstand it. Not fully, but Partially. We must understand it when we imagine God to be simply dealing with the hand that he gets dealt by someone else. Stuff comes at him, and he kind of finds it and discovers it and then works some magic to make it good for his people. To to make a bit of a caricature, as if he says, oh, wow, look what just bad thing just happened to my people. But, you know, I think if I work it like this, then I can make lemonade out of those lemons. There. He's extremely competent, but devoid of sovereign power and omniscience. This might be odd at first, but we need to see the God of Habakkuk himself bringing the lemons to the table. He has done that. And we need to hear a few of the multitude of passages. I'm not even going to scratch the surface on them, but I'm going to list a few of the multitude of passages like Second Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul, talking about his persecutions, clear evil, says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. This is not just a bad day. This is hard and heavy persecution. They're convinced they're going to die. Listen to this. But that was to make us. That's a purpose statement. All of that heavy persecution, that was to make us Rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul is explicit. The persecutions came because of a divine purpose. Those persecutions were to make something happen in us. What was it? To make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He says that God brought the persecutions to them to refine their faith, to build it. Or consider 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 19. I won't read the whole passage, but it begins, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Again, that doesn't sound like much fun. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. That's a purpose statement. Whose purpose? Rome's? No, Rome's not trying to test them. Rome's trying to kill them. God is the one trying to test them. It's his purpose. And verse 19 then concludes the section. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God's willed suffering should lead us to entrust our souls to him. He seeks to build our faith. And so we shouldn't be surprised when James tells us, chapter 1, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What kind of nut is that who says count it all joy when you go through all kinds of hardship? Well, let's keep reading. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, so that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What kind of nut is that? The nut who wants to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, and knows that comes from having his faith tested, and knows that comes from trials. So joy, bring on the trials so that I can get to hear God. James encourages us to embrace all sorts of trials so that we can grow in our faith. Peter says the same thing, essentially, in chapter 1. When he talks about the necessity of being grieved by various trials in order to prove and refine the genuineness of our faith. It's in First Peter 1. The God of Habakkuk, the God of Paul, the God of Peter, the God of James, our God. God indeed works all things for the good of those who love him and are his children, but he knows full well the thing that we most need. He's going to give that to us, the thing that is of greater worth than gold. To quote Peter again. Strong, steadfast, growing faith. He knows that we need that most of all. And amidst the challenges of life, that does not naturally grow in us. Now all this is talking to Christians only. These things are all written to Christians, those who have already been saved by faith and already believe. We're talking about that faith growing and becoming strong and enabling the person to read life through God rather than the other way around. That kind of growing, strengthened faith does not happen apart from storms and challenges. You know this is true. Think about this, a simple example that proves the point. Your prayer life and my prayer life, when is it strongest and when is it weakest? We pray a whole lot more when we're hurting, when we're afraid, when we're under pressure. And conversely, when we're on the back deck and the sun's shining and there's no trouble in sight anywhere, our prayer life withers. You know that's true. a simple illustration that proves the, the basic point. If God loves you, and he does, passionately, passionately, he loves you. It's part of this first picture of the glory of God. God passionately loves you, and if he does, He will give you the very best thing for the very longest time. That's what he'll be engaged in doing. And the very best thing for the very longest time is not health and wealth and comfort and ease on this earth. It is him forever. That is the very best thing for the very longest time to His glory and our greatest good. And the more of Himself He gives you, the more deeply you connect with Him by faith, the better off you are. So God's discipline is aiming at that in your life. A growing strength in faith that is fastened to Him. Much of the time, all the hardship that He's going to use it comes from evil people. Evil people do evil things. Evil systems do evil things. That's why he uses them. He's going to judge them one day, but in the meantime, he's using them to give you something incredibly gracious and loving, to give you a stronger faith through which he'll give you himself. He only disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12. C.S. Lewis, in commenting on that chapter in Hebrews, noted a great irony that exists among the people of God. He says that chapter is very clear that the discipline of God comes from love. So he's going to bring hardship into our life to discipline us from love, but oftentimes we who think that love should be displayed by comfort and ease pray and cry out to God desperately, God, take all the hardship out of my life. That becomes our sole objective. It's not wrong to pray against hardship, but when it's your sole objective, that's wrong. We pray, God, take all this out of my life. Don't you love me? Do it because you love me. And on the other side, he's saying, I put it there because I love you. So the great irony that Lewis comments on is that we pray based on the love of God that God would love us less. Because you love me, please stop loving me. There is a lot to weigh here, I know. I hope this has opened up how you think about Hardship and suffering and God's use of evil in your life. I'm sure that all the answers haven't been given, that all the questions haven't even all been asked. But the effect this should have on you is it should cause you to look between your view of God and the horizon that's approaching. All through here you're going to encounter all kinds of stuff. Hardship and evil is going to bump into you to all different levels. You may have a relative killed in Iraq. You may have cancer. You may get stuck in traffic. All different levels. And what I hope is that this encourages you to look at God working in all of those things, bringing them to your life so that He can grow and develop your faith so that you will have more of Him now and forever. It doesn't mean those things aren't evil. It doesn't mean we shouldn't fight against them in various ways. But it does mean that God is working in them in you. If you have that perspective and you see the love of God for you, even in the things in which you might be tempted to think the love of God has left you, it hasn't. He's embracing you perhaps very uniquely at that time. You take your cries and complaints and you go up to your own watchtower and you say to God, what's the deal? I can't connect this. He won't give you all the answers, but I'm pretty confident that the answer that He does give you eventually will have these three things in it. Can you see them there? They're true. He is a glorious God. And He is going to deal with sin and evil and wickedness. And in the meantime, He is loving you with a deep and gracious love by sanctifying you. Strangely, we are to count it all joy. That is a command in James. We are to count it all joy and say, Bless you, hardship, for being in my life. I want to sum all this up. I'll steal another line from C.S. Lewis to describe God. He is not safe. He will bring a lot of things your way that are hard to deal with. He is not safe, but He is good. Trust Him. Let me pray.